0: Welcome to The Real Python Podcast. This is episode 116. Would you like to explore the functional programming side of Python? What are the advantages of this approach? And what tools are built into the language? This week on the show, author Bruce Eckel talks about functional programming in Python. Bruce is the author of several programming books, including Thinking in Java, Thinking in C++, Thinking in Python, Atomic Scala, and most recently, Atomic Kotlin. He's been an explorer of programming languages over his career. Functional programming has recently caught Bruce's attention with its lack of side effects, transparency, and potential for parallelization. Bruce's talk, Making Data Classes Work For You at PyCon US 2022, explored the idea of the invariance of objects. We also discuss his next book project, the Python community, and his affection for unconferences. Bruce is hosting the upcoming Summer Tech Forum in Crested Butte, Colorado, this August. All right, let's get started. The RealPython Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at RealPython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real world python skills with a community of experts at RealPython.com. Hey Bruce, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. I'm excited to talk. We met at PyCon US 2022 and I wasn't that familiar with your background, but a bunch of people around me were like, oh my God, Bruce (laughs) Eckel. He's written all these amazing books. So then I did research and I was like, oh wow, okay, all right. (laughs) And I guess I just haven't spent as much time in like Java and those kind of programming languages. I I kind of took a long time off in between my programming journey. I, I started in the late 80s in college and then went down this whole route as a musician and then kind of came back to programming with SQL and then Python and a few other tools. And obviously the web kind of happened in between there.
1: Musicians seem to make good programmers.
0: That's interesting. Why do you say that?
1: I I mean, my, that's been my experience. I've known a fair number of musicians who are also programmers and, you know, you could just say, well, you know, look at sheet music, it's like a computer program. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, maybe that's why it's so easy for musicians to kind of make that jump.
0: Yeah, it's a lot of uh, interesting problem solving also, and mm-hmm. in, in making things fit harmonically. <laughs>
1: sure, sure.
0: <laughs> yeah, and improvising too, I guess, in some ways, which is very crucial. Right. So you had reached out about some potential topics. Yes. The one that we thought that would work initially here to start with is kind of built on the talk that you did at PyCon, which was about data classes, and it was titled Making Data Classes Work for You. It kind of leads into functional programming. I've only talked about functional programming really briefly on the show with Mm -hmm. my previous co-host, David Amos. Maybe we could get a little background on on some of that. Sure. That's something we're going to dive into deeply, but maybe we should also talk about some of the other stuff that you do, like you you have a podcast yourself?
1: Yes, my friend James and I do the Happy Path Programming podcast. So that's just happypathprogramming.com and we came to that name because that's where we want to go and it's also kind of ironically where when you go down that path I guess when you traips down that path it usually <laughs> gets you into trouble but that's still you know what we'd like is to be able to say here's what I want to do not so much here's all the things that can go wrong okay and that's kind of what functional programming is i mean this is a problem because y- you pick you pick up books on functional programming and most of them have different perspectives on what it is and often it's like a list of features. And so one of the things that I've been struggling with is, yeah, what is the essence of functional programming or or basically what problem are we trying to solve? That's the question that seems to keep coming up. Okay. And, and, and like most of these recent endeavors, it's like you ask that question, what problem are we trying to solve? And then it makes people step back and go, yeah, what problem are we trying to solve? <laughs> yeah. With functional programming, I would say, and I've gone through various aha moments thinking, yes, I have it figured out. I would say that it is, you've probably heard the term, don't repeat yourself, dry, Right. Yes. So I would say that functional programming is dry, taken to the extreme. Hmm. The kinds of things that people do in functional programming is to, like, if you look at the big picture, it's to repeat almost nothing. Okay. For example, if you were writing, you know, most languages, we constantly write these for loops. And... Every time you write a for loop, there's a little bit of a chance to make an error in, you know, the usual various ways that we know. So what functional programming does is it basically says, oh, what we're going to do is we're going to extract the for loop. So you're never going to write a for loop again. But instead, you're going to write something like, I mean, they have a number of different small Completely debugged functions that you use instead, like a fold. So a fold takes a starting value, it takes a sequence of values, and then it takes some, you know, basically a little function that it's going to apply to it, exactly like what you do with a for loop. But instead of writing the for loop, you simply say, okay, here's my fold. And it's so that you never write a for loop again, and you never mess that up. The only, ch- the only change that you have is the function that you pass this fold, and this is one of the reasons why lambdas are important in functional programming. And, you know, this is The place where it gets confusing because somebody comes in and says functional programming means that you can pass functions you can return functions they virtually always have lambdas there's a lot of invariants there's kind of goes on and on with a bunch of features and if you don't really know what it's going for like a lot of functional programming books will start with recursion and so you imagine that oh well i'm going to be using recursion a lot in functional programming and in fact you almost never use it because the recursion is built into things like these little functions like fold okay and they they use the recursion so that they can produce a sequence but without having a variable. That's that's another thing functional programming is really known for, is not having variables.
0: Okay, so you're not setting a lot of
1: things in advance. Yeah, well, so you're not changing things. The pro- The problem with a variable is that, in particular, if you're dealing with concurrency, if you have more than one task that has access to a variable, you never know what, you're going to get. What state it's
0: in. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
1: Exactly. And one of the things about functional programming is, I mean, th- they have this concept of a pure function, which means that it only takes arguments and it only produces results and it has no side effects. Okay. And so if you call it with a particular set of arguments, you will always get the same result. So it becomes more like a mathematical function. And that's one of the reasons why math is kind of closely tied to functional programming because they're trying to, in a sense, be able to have at least portions of your program, you know, quote unquote, provably correct, um, you know, not things that are, are going to be basically bug magnets.
0: Yeah, super reproducible for others. and
1: Yes, exactly. So you don't look at it and go, oh, I guess I need to, you know, do special tests on this piece of code it's just well no the, for example again the fold is oh well we know that that has been thoroughly debugged and so when i use that i don't have to worry about that you know introducing bugs whereas if you're changing if you're doing side effects or if you're if you're getting information from say a clock or or a database or something well you don't always know i mean those are those are typically thought of as side effects, and and side effects cause unpredictable programs. And so another way of looking at functional programming is to say that the goal is to produce completely reliable programs. And a lot of that is by eliminating variables in place of values. And of course, Python doesn't, it basically doesn't have constants. Everything's a variable.
0: Right, okay.
1: And so my presentation was not just looking at data classes, but it was looking at a specific version of data classes, which are are when you set the frozen flag. And that means it'll, it'll initialize the values. And once it's initialized, if you try and change it, you'll get, well, the best thing that Python can do, which is an exception, but at least you'll find out about it. it. It prevents you from changing the values. And the reason that that is nice with data classes is that you can create, I mean, this is another term that's gotten confused, the idea of a type. Okay. And the way that uh, functional programming looks at types is that they are a set of values. And that sounds really kind of simple, But what I showed in my um, presentation, which you can find, I think it's up on YouTube by now.
0: Yeah, they're up now. And I was just watching it. Yeah.
1: Oh, it is good. Excellent. So what that shows is, okay, suppose you're, you're going to have a rating system for a, I don't know, you know, a hotel or, or whatever. And so you have one to 10 stars. And so every function that takes something that you want to treat as a star, that function should check to make sure, you know, as a precondition, it should say, is this a value, this int that you've passed me, is this between 1 to 10? So that's not a very you've got tests spread out all you know these preconditions spread out through all your functions if you decide to change it to a 1 to 5 system you have to go find them all and sometimes you miss some and everything mm-hmm. and so what object oriented programming was supposed to do was this uh, promise of encapsulation and this is a little embarrassing because i you know taught the value of encapsulation for many years and it wasn't until i started studying functional programming and looking at, you know, what is really a type that I realized that, oh, the promise of encapsulation really, hmm, well, let's say it was experimental at the time. It hadn't gotten a lot of testing. And for the last, you know, because I was involved with C++ way back, and that's when I, you know, I was trying to figure out what Bjorn Strustrup was trying to express with the language, and so I saw, you know, encapsulation and inheritance and polymorphism, and I said, oh, well, these must be the most important things in the world, and so kind of focused on them in my, well, yeah, and they were also difficult things for people to understand, because if they're coming from C or Pascal or something, so I really focused on those things, and in hindsight, I realized those can be useful tools. Right. Okay. But, but you know, like the, the approach that Java took, which is like, well, if objects are good, then everything must be an object. And you know when you write Python code, at least this is my experience, I start out with functions. Yeah. Oh, I want a function to do this, a function to do that. Sometimes... Definitely not all the time, but sometimes I'll get to a point where it's like, oh, something doesn't feel right about this design. And then I realize, oh, these things over here, they want to be an object. And that happens sometimes, but to be forced to make everything a function, I mean, sorry, uh, to make everything an object is just way overboard. You know, that's... It's
0: like you're building so much overhead for for something that maybe you're only going to use like a, a small percentage of what, what it can do.
1: Well, it's worse because Java forces you to do everything in objects even when... I mean, the, the the idea of an object is that it's to help in some kinds of designs. Okay. But by making everything an object and I've realized recently static... Java is a statically typed language, whereas Smalltalk, you know, the the first really successful programming language was dynamic, and so the idea of sending a message to an object is like, yeah, any message can read anyway. Without going too deeply into that, yeah, it really changes, you know, because originally Java was supposed to be, oh, let's just. You know, make a modern version of Smalltalk. It was heavily inspired by Smalltalk, so except for the dynamic part, and so in many ways, Python is much more like Smalltalk than huh. Java was because it's dynamic. Because there are all are all these dynamic things that you can do.
0: It's so wild. You have such this great background of <laughs> of you know seeing all these different languages and kind of seeing their strengths and and weaknesses. What were what are some of the other things that are drawn? you know take a little tangent here to talk about like what what has drawn you to to python and talking about it
1: well so i had started so i was on the c plus plus standards committee for its first eight years and before that i was at the university of washington we were working on a this was in the school of oceanography and we were working on a research project to make programming easier for scientists and engineers kind of i guess not really ironically but anyway what notebook ended up being the
0: yeah Jupiter
1: yeah you know one of the solutions big solution python and notebook ended up being the the real solution for that but you know anyway so yeah i've i've struggled with this uh, stuff for a long time there was a question let me help me back
0: i was intrigued that you're interested in kind of going to lots of different conferences. Like that oh, you're right. You're interested in, seeing, in checking out Python and yeah, that you're kind of interested in watching the development. Is it, is it more of a fascination of like what's happening with the language or ways it's being used?
1: Well, there's that. But I've also been involved. I mean, I started using... I know why I was telling you about C++ is because here I've been dealing with all these compiled languages. Yeah. And then somehow I learned about Perl And I experimented with that. And that was just amazing because it was dynamic. And, you know, there there wasn't this compile process. There wasn't all this hassle you had to go through to, you know, solve little problems. And it was incredible. And then two weeks later, I looked at the Perl code that I had written, and I couldn't understand it. Mm -hmm. So that kind of soured me on Perl. But it wasn't much longer than that. And I feel like it might have been python one point four, but I don't remember you know it was an early version of python i've I've been using Python for uh well longer than than Java for sure, and I use it myself for just solving my own problems if I need to solve a problem of my own i I start with Python and you know I n- know it very well and
0: yeah, that leads to to functions then too, right in the sense that very often sort of simple things that you're you're solving a lot of people think of yeah you know i used to ask this question very early on in the show where i was saying hey what's something that you thought you knew about python but you were wrong about it and a really common answer so often that i stopped asking the question was that i always thought it was just a scripting language
1: well of course
0: right and well well yeah it's excellent for that you know like you know, you can get a result really quick. You can write stuff. The, the idea that, you know, you said a very first approach for a lot of people have is write these functions to make it do things.
1: Of course. And not only that, but people will tell you again, even now, oh, Python's very limited. And, and I have a friend, my friend Jeremy, works with big, complicated systems, and he does not... I mean, he doesn't have problems with, uh, at his company, with uh, either performance or complexity. Right. So it's, but people who don't understand Python will very confidently tell you that, oh, well, you know, you can only do this. And I've heard this for, 25 years. You can <laughs> right. and and I've told, you know, I've said those things to myself as well, which is like, yeah, well, Python, yeah, it can it can do these things and it could do those things, but it can't do that thing. And then it keeps doing that thing. Yeah. And and it keeps not I mean there are yeah, people sometimes have issues performance it can often be a big one, but There are solutions, and the solutions keep getting better. It looks to me like if you need to speed up a little corner of your Python code, the whole Rust 03, I think it's the 03 ecosystem, is just really amazing because you create a Python extension and nobody nobody has to do anything special to use it. It's just another piece of Python, and it runs at Rust speed. So... You know, it's, but I get it. I understand the, why people, <laughs>
0: the sentiment, yeah.
1: Yeah. Because if you've been indoctrinated in compiled languages and you understand, one of the first things that I did when I was, you know, working for companies is I had to write in assembly language, a floating point math library. Oh boy. And so at one point I understood that really well, but. For the longest time after that, every time I would see a floating point math calculation, my brain would go, well, that's going to take forever because I know how all the wheels turn. Yeah. Okay. And so when you're used to a compiled language and you go, well, it compiles down to assembly language, naturally it's going to be the fastest thing ever because I know how those wheels turn. And it's a lot more complicated when you look at a language like Python, which, yeah, there are things that take longer but generally trying to guess performance is just a failing game it just yeah but we always want to do it and we always want to feel confident in our guesses but i mean it's like uh concurrency that's a whole nother can of worms that (laughs) (laughs) comes up with like people saying, "Oh well, I want to use concurrency because my program should run faster." It was like, "Does your program really need to run faster? Can you throw hardware at it? Uh, is there some other way than hacking your code up with concurrency, whatever flavor of concurrency you're using, you know, do you really need to do this, or you know are you just trying to be cool? I don't know
0: as you're you know you have a lot more experience with looking at other people's problems potentially in this field like do you feel that people turn to that quickly and say oh you know like they don't necessarily look at maybe there's a way that i could refactor my code or, or other ways that i could you know restructure things like is, is that a tendency a lot of developer or programmers have
1: well the thing i learned because i go out and do consulting sure, there's. Well, there's a bunch of different kinds of consulting, but, but the, the kind that I have the biggest problem with is what we sometimes call carpet bombing, (laughs) where you come in and say, you're doing it wrong. This is the right way to do it Bye, and that doesn't change anything. So this is a roundabout answer. Every company develops a culture. Yeah. And so. It's, you know, it's like uh, the beginning of Anna Karenina, which I've never read, but everybody knows the first line, you know, all happy families are the same and all unhappy families are different in their own different ways. And it's like every, every company has its culture and they all do things that, you know, work well and then they have blind spots. And so... Uh, the trick of consulting is understanding, and the biggest thing is i'd say understanding what a company or team is capable of what how what kind of changes can they actually make mm, yeah. and usually they're way less than what is hoped for, but you can actually make the changes you know they can actually make the changes rather than having an ambition that is completely unrealistic so that's kind of. So yeah, everybody has their own unique blind spots, which are reinforced by their culture or created by their culture.
0: This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. It covers a topic we touched on this week. It's titled Using Data Classes in Python. The course is based on a RealPython tutorial by previous guest, Gerana Hiela. And the instructor for the course is Darren Jones and he takes you through comparing data classes to standard classes, how to define your own data classes, adding default values to fields in your data class, customizing the ordering of data class objects, working with immutable data classes, exploring inheritance and subclassing, and how to optimize data classes. Python data classes were introduced in Python 3.7 And if you aren't familiar with how to take advantage of them, this course will prepare you. I think learning how to utilize them will enhance your Python developer skills and let you explore some of the advantages of functional programming as we discussed this week. And like most of the video courses on real Python, the course is broken into easily consumable sections and has code samples for the techniques shown. All of our courses include a transcript and closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the search tool on realpython.com. When you were in your talk, y- you talked about data classes and this idea of how it has a, a kind of a nice function within the it in the constructor that it has a, a dunder post init method. Yes. And, and you're using that to be able to do some of that checking to kind of remove a lot of the additional programming you were going to have to add, like for your star system, right?
1: Yeah, that's part of the, that's actually part of the frozen flag. Oh, okay. So the frozen adds the uh, post init because the data class does all the initialization for you. And so you can't, I mean, presumably you could probably go in and hack on the constructor. But the point of the data class is that it makes a constructor for you. And I'm using constructor rather than people sometimes say, oh, a constructor is actually dunder new, which nobody really changes
0: it's rare you would change it, yeah. We've been talking about it lately. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's rare. So uh, when I refer to constructor, I mean dunder init, yeah. So yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it'd be nice if we could change that terminology. But so w- what frozen does is when you say it, it adds the code that makes sure that you can't change any of the variables in your data class, but then it also adds it looks for the the post init. And and so in the post init, what you do is you check to make sure that the values are, say in the case of the stars, between 1 and 10. Yeah. And so now you have a true type, which says, okay, it's a set of values, and the values are 1 through 10, and it can't be anything else. And that's the key, is that... It has to be, I mean, that because you're using this frozen data class, there's no way to make a star object that isn't between one and 10. And so, and it's just a few lines, and it doesn't see the problem with encapsulation is that that requires every uh, method to check, typically with a post condition that we didn't mess up the values of the variables, so we didn't put the stars outside of their ranges. So, but with the data class, you go, okay, you can never make anything but a star between value one through 10. And the problem is now solved, because now we just pass stars around, and nobody has to check it. And if you wanted to change it to one to five, you would change it in that one place.
0: Would you be constructing a new star then?
1: You could, I mean, you know, the underlying implementation, like the way I did it, I just did it the easy way, which is like, you want a new star, I'll make you a new star. But you could also, you know, have a cache of stars, or in the presentation, I also showed how enum is a different way to define a type, because an enum is a set of types, Mm. an enumeration is a set of types, and it has advantages sometimes over using like a frozen data class. If you have, typically, if you have a fixed number, like probably, you know, my values of, of one to 10 might have worked better as an enum. I'm um, always doing it as an example. But if you have a fixed, like I showed the example of dates, like months. So months make a good enum. And, and then you can add some, you know, tests and checks and stuff into your enum. Uh, whereas the, the data class is probably when you're going to have you know you don't need to make all those objects up front or or, you know you just want to make them as you need them and there's too many to have as an enum etc that's
0: kind of cool like the idea of like getting to that goal of immutability Mm -hmm. and i guess that seems to be part of the key to you know keeping things within the vein of it being functional right
1: yes yes the being able to to use invariance and in particular to use it in this way to be able to say oh i have a type here and it's a set of values and i have ways to define those sets of values so that i don't have to be checking all the time then it just saves you a vast amount of work it just it it simplifies your life and that's the kind of thing people typically experience when they're learning functional programming. I mean, One of the simplest things that you can do, even though Python doesn't have vowels, it, it only has variables. But one of the simplest things you can do is only ever assign to a variable and never change it. And that actually makes your life easier because if uh, I, I since I started doing this debugging is a lot simpler because I was thinking it, that nothing changes, right?
0: Yeah, and your your amount of tests that you would create would be much smaller too.
1: Exactly. Yeah, because you don't have to test. Did this value wander out of its uh, of of its range? It, you know, is it is it still proper? yeah it is it, it's a really compelling and it, on our podcast on the on the Happy path podcast we had interviewed somebody who had created a library for Scala called smart types and that's when it just kind of hit me and i'm going, wow this it's uh, it's really disappointing that it's taken me so long to see something as simple as this <laughs> and but it has and i
0: how do you see it changing your programming go for? I know, I know, you're primarily you're an author and, mm-hmm. and you know programmer, and but how do you see it changing the things that you you develop, in the way you code?
1: Well. I mean, this is the kind of thing that you see when people start getting sucked into the functional programming cult, (laughs) which is they start looking because they know, you know, for example, instead of returning a value, uh, you know, a normal return value, you start returning an option or an either. And those, well, basically those carry extra information. So, it's when your value, when your return value can be something else, but you can't represent it in, you know, by setting, well, in C, they used to set things to to negative one or set flags or all this kind of stuff, but the bottom line was that, oh, we actually need to return more information than just the result. We need to return maybe something that indicates that the result doesn't exist or indicates that there's an error condition, which that's what we invented you know, exceptions for. So that's basically what a monad is. It's a package that holds more than just the return value because we need to. Okay. And then there's some functions that go along that make it easier to use that package, but the essence of the monad is that it's that. It's like, oh, result isn't enough, so I need a box, and I need to put all the extra information into that box, and now I'll return that. And so that's what option and either are, are these simple monads that allow you to return both the result and some kind of other information along with it, usually an error conditioner or indicator that it doesn't exist. And so that's the kind of thing that you start to see people use when they begin learning functional programming. And they, the real problem is that it's not... like There's a lot of things you can do where you're just... You go, oh, we'll start using this new library, or we'll use Docker, or we'll use something like that. And it doesn't, I mean, it changes a lot of things, but it doesn't fundamentally change your programming culture. But the thing about functional programming is that it does change your programming culture. I mean, if, if people aren't on board with it, it's just going to be a battle. So I don't know how you would create a company that did yeah. functional programming except from scratch.
0: So that's why like you were kind of pointing out certain sort of areas of programming, like math sort of tend in that direction. And I would argue that Python initially, I, you know, I can't say about early days of Python since I'm too new to it, but I feel that I had heard that functional programming wasn't something that was designed into the language, like the idea of the reduce which helps you create a lot of the folding kind of operations that you were talking about was something that needed to be added.
1: Well, reduce is another one.
0: Okay. Uh, that a lot of these things weren't there initially or were kind of like maybe somewhat frowned upon. Again, I may be wrong in that, but it's interesting to, to me that it seems like Python is very flexible.
1: <laughs> oh yeah.
0: Which is kind of good in a lot of ways. I mean, that's hence partly the dynamic thing, but also just, you can approach it in a very, you know, scripting kind of way that's somewhat functional in a lot of, you know, ways that you might approach what you're doing with it. It's very popular in in science and, and mathematics for a lot of those kinds of things that you can do, and that's where I where I've seen the use of like lambdas and and stuff like that much more often. But you can move into an object oriented mode too if you if you want to.
1: Right, but you're not forced to. Right, yeah. <laughs> which is which is really but I mean that's kind of you know that to me that's what Guido is about, you know, it's like we're helping. We're not forcing.
0: <laughs> yeah, okay.
1: Whereas java java was like no we know the right way of doing things we're we're Hmm. forcing you to everything's got to be an object your your file names have to be the same as your public class names and they have to be in a particular directory structure and it's like uh, python is such a breath of fresh air (laughs) when you're compared to that and nobody else that i know of has done that i mean certainly kotlin freed up so many different things that way so Yes you're but but i I think I see where you're going with, which is that, well, yeah, you can do functional programming in Python, and there are support libraries that you know even build on top of that, and yeah and you can also do you know, be as just object oriented to the wall right with Python if you want to. And yeah, there's there's a bunch of things. And then decorators, which really I think of as kind of an example of functional programming, but you know, that really changes. I for at one point I thought, hey, you know, a really cool build system would just be using Python decorators for everything. Because what a decorator does is it takes the function and it spits out another function, which is the def you know, one of the definitions of functional programming.
0: Yeah, I think that's so cool. That was one of the very first things that that I felt like I needed to learn in Python. I would see them in lots of you know other packages and stuff as I kind of grew into learning the language. And I was like, what is this at symbol? You know, and I had not really seen like kind of what was going on. And I you know, I've mentioned it several times. So that was one of the first courses I created a video course based on Garana Yellow's his his very detailed like guide on real Python about it. And I was like, wow, this is cool. Like this idea of like, you know, passing a function in and, you know, returning it and.
1: Returning a different function. I mean, usually a different function.
0: Yeah. Potentially returning. Yeah. How it's been changed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the sort of simplicity of like how it's written, you know, which is really cool idea that you literally are sort of just like decorating with it, putting it on top of another function.
1: Well, right. It becomes a meta language. Yeah. And that is really powerful and i mean that's what because because for example that's what data classes they're just decorators so it 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 just opens a lot of doors and yeah no and i think this was the first time i was aware of functional programming because i saw somebody's code and they had a function and then inside they defined another function and then they returned that function. And I stared at that and I was going, What is going? Why would you Yeah, all these you know thoughts go through my head? And of course now I get it, but at the time it was just and and this is the kind of thing that people encounter when they're you know, when you have a mixed group of people who understand functional programming and don't, even when they're using a language like Python, is because you're gonna see stuff like that and go, What?
0: Yeah, that's been probably the hardest thing for me. Is, is this a bit of context switching, you know? Mm-hmm. Of like, trying to like, okay, what is the style this person's, you know, writing in? And,
1: style, yeah. And
0: think about it, if you will.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. No. I mean,
0: or mode, or whatever you want to think of it.
1: <laughs> no, everybody everybody does tend to have their own style, I'm sure. I mean, my style, of course, seems very natural to me, but, and and I guess I would like to think that I try and write in a style that isn't too idiomatic because I'm trying to explain things to people. I mean, at this point, it's all been blog posts on Python, but uh, I've, I've tried, sort of tried, I mean, I've thought about Python books for years, just like what Python book should I write? Yeah. And um, my friend, I I think, you know, uh, Luciano, I think you've. uh, Yeah,
0: he was on the show. That was a fun interview. We're talking about types and stuff.
1: Yes. Well, he he's like, I mean, I first met him when he asked me to come down and keynote at the Brazil Python Conference. Oh, cool. And uh, and then he showed me around, and then he started coming to Crested Butte, and he comes up here pretty well as often as he can, and we often have these little developer retreats when he's here. Yeah. And um, that's a but but Luciano wrote his book you know, sometime after that, and when I saw that, I go, well, if I were to write Thinking in Python, it would be that book. Okay. And, and his second edition, I think, is just on the cusp of coming out. I'm not sure what the details are, but I'm really looking forward to that because he's done a really careful explanation of concurrency in it, and um, so I'm expecting to get a lot
0: yeah, we talked a lot about like his. He has some interesting methods of kind of having having these sort of sidebars that I thought was kind of cool, where mm-hmm. he's sort of explaining his own opinion, sort of stuff. Yes, but as as a sidebar, like as like you know, hey, this is how I feel about this thing, as opposed to it being in the text, quote unquote. And I, I thought that was kind of interesting. And he help, he kind of explained how that was like deflecting a lot of the kind of heated battle somebody could have about a certain thing. And I was like, that's an interesting approach.
1: Well, yeah, just make sure um, that it's like, hey, if you're interested in what I think about this stuff, then it's in a box. (laughs) But if you don't want to know that, just skip the boxes. And I go, yeah, that's right. Keep moving. (laughs) I think with me, like, even though... My Java book, has Thinking in Java, has been used by a lot of people to learn Java. My goal in that book was to show all the problems, I mean, everything about Java, but in particular, the problems. Because a lot of books just go, ah, Java's wonderful, and everything's great. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to show, no, here's a problem, here's a problem. Because if you understand those problems, it's going to make you a better programmer. If you know, If you have to use Java, then... You know, you want to know what all the corner cases are so you don't get surprised by them. So that's really what I was trying to do. And it's kind of like a little bit, okay, here I'm just going to explain this and show you the examples in a way that you can't, you know, ideally you can't argue with.
0: <laughs> is your book, in general, you've done a lot of these thinking in type of books,
1: Well, too are they
0: considered well are they considered like beginner books or are they considered more like hey you've been using the language a little bit here is maybe how quote unquote you should think in it and kind of moving people beyond because that's definitely how luciano yes approached his book like his book starts with like special methods and you know kind of like stuff that's not a beginner thing yeah
1: well I'd like to think that I inspired Luciano. Oh, cool. I mean, we, we, did, we have spent a fair amount of time together, and I would love to think that I inspired him because he did such a good job that, you know, and then he was maybe trying to achieve the same thing. So the answer is neither. What I was actually trying to do, okay. and I was wrong, was I was shooting for experienced programmers, so somebody who had programmed in some language. okay but then i guess
0: now you need to think in this other language
1: uh, well yeah so i'm going to i'm going to assume that you know enough that you can follow this but it turned out that i had so uh, in particular thinking in java so many people over the years have come up and said that was my first programming book oh uh, wow yeah and i thought oh okay i really misunderstood who i was writing for
0: <laughs> yeah but well, you can't control it right <laughs>
1: Well, no, that's fine, but but I think what I did, and what I've seen in the problem that I've seen in a lot of uh, programming books, like right now I'm doing a survey of um, concurrency books, and the problem that I see is the oh, don't worry about all of those details. I'm showing you this example and it has things that you won't understand, but don't worry about it. Mm. And I just can't get beyond that. It's like, well, why are you showing me this example yeah. if I can't understand it?
0: That feels like a book closer.
1: So what I did with thinking in Java, which, you know, hello world in Java is insanely complicated. <laughs> yeah. You have to understand static methods yeah. and, public static void main etc etc if there's all this stuff you have to understand in order to say hello world and so a lot of people just go "Oh, i'll explain all that stuff later but i go that's that's just going to turn people off yeah so i spent a lot of time explaining you know why are we doing this object-oriented thing and what are all of the keywords that you need to understand and what they're doing before you can understand hello world in java and i think that's what helped people that's cool and that's why beginners could could do it yeah but oh boy that's a lot of work
0: yeah that's really important to me whenever i found a book like just like having someone who's willing to you know dig in with me on those kinds of things because I, nothing turns me off more than like Like I said, kind of people shooing you along, like, don't worry about the details. It's like, Mm -hmm. but this is programming. It's all about the details, you know? It is
1: the details. It's like, that's like, and if you don't understand one thing, it's gonna, you're just gonna be going, what, am I stupid? Am I supposed to understand this? Why would somebody do this?
0: Yeah, it's like debt, right?
1: (laughs) Right. So it's like
0: educational debt or something.
1: (laughs) Yes. Exactly. It's like, it leaves a hole in your head. It makes you, I mean, and the worst thing is if it makes you feel stupid. Yeah. So that, uh, you know, because that drive, think about, it's like we, we don't have enough programmers and the problem is getting worse. Yeah. Computers still haven't learned how to program themselves. GitHub Copilot is amazing. Right. But it just speeds you up. It doesn't replace you. Yeah. So, it's like a better form of stack overflow.
0: Yeah, I guess, yeah, yeah.
1: We still, and and it's like every business you go into, you say, oh my gosh, your your whatever system you're using needs to be better and it needs to be be easier to create that system in the first place. And it's like, so if we drive people away, one of the things I love about Python is uh, Guido has always, like wanted to be inclusive Mm -hmm. and he's tried to create a good culture from the start. Yeah. And you see languages that don't do that and they just go, Oh, the culture will take care of itself. And very often it goes bad. And I so respect what he has done with, uh, the culture more than anything, because you know, the, we have at PyCon, we have, maybe i don 't know if it's 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 at least approaching half women speakers and we have minorities and you know we have yeah. we have everybody, and we have all the pi ladies and the and the Django girls and all this stuff where if you're a woman coming into computing and you 've heard all the things that you 've heard about our field, and you go huh. Where do I want to go? Yeah. Oh, there's a thing that has Django girls and pie ladies. I'll bet that would be friendly to women. I will go to that language. Yeah. And it is.
0: It's so true. Yeah, yeah. And
1: that's huge.
0: Like the, this year with the Spanish-speaking community having yes. its own track, which is amazing. Yeah, the, Right. Charlas, I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm gonna, I should look it up.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's brilliant. Yeah. It's like, and they keep doing stuff like that. And I, I mean that 's one of the great things about the conference is that it 's a community conference, and it 's self organized like I made the t shirt for two thousand and nine, which is when I broke my leg skiing, so i didn 't get to see thousands of people wearing my painting Aww. but But I have had lots of people come up to me and say, "Oh, that was my favorite shirt," which is very gratifying but um, cool. but the fact that everybody you know gets involved and it evolves and it doesn 't get stuck in ruts of because i used to manage the c plus plus and java tracks in the software development conference which you probably don't even remember but one of the things that had happened in that conference is the same speakers would come back year after year and give the same talks Uh. and so i had i gave them one year to change the talks and the people that didn't didn't get invited back because uh, it wasn't moving forward right and with PyCon they're just always doing new experimental things they're just yeah i just love to cuz i've been i mean i gave a i don't know at some of the very early conferences i gave an opening keynote at one and a closing keynote at another and um this is way back and so i've been i've i've gone to almost every one That's cool <laughs> and uh, Oh yeah, and it just—it's
0: good to hear that the the community stuff because it's something that I've brought up again. Having left program for a long time, kind of following my musician slash Mm -hmm. audio engineer career for a while, and then kind of coming back to programming and getting really involved in it, and figuring out where I fit, you know, like where I felt like I wanted to learn. You know, I've been a I was a teacher at, at a school for recording engineers, so I had this background of education and sure, kind of that kind of stuff, but I. I've mentioned this several times about like, you know, the JavaScript community, I just didn't feel very welcomed in it. And, you know, maybe somebody else will say something different, but, and, and I've maybe noticed that on a handful of other communities and Python definitely has felt that way to me. So it's cool to hear you reinforce that to say, yeah, I've been around and I I can see that. And I mean, there may be other communities that are growing and, and are welcoming also, but it's definitely, that's, Out of all the ones that I've seen, (laughs) experience uh, my my experience is the same.
1: I'm not aware. I'm not aware of any community that has achieved what the Python community has.
0: Oh, cool! Yeah, it's awesome to hear. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, a lot of them are friendlier, et cetera, et cetera, but not nothing as good. You know, nothing is
0: doing the diversity and all the things that we're doing.
1: All yeah, yeah, all that stuff. I think Python is the gold standard. for you know that the other communities can look at and say how do we do that
0: so you kind of brought up two things that i want to touch on then one is this idea of you're sort of doing groundwork on a new book of concurrency is what you're thinking about doing it and you kind of mentioned to me that maybe the goal is to do it in in python is that right
1: um, well, so I started cause my last book was, is called Atomic Kotlin okay. and it's, a, it's about the Kotlin language, which is amazing. And one of the things about Kotlin is that it stole a bunch of stuff. Well, it basically stole all of the best things from all of the other languages, which I think is,
0: it's a fun way to do it. <laughs>
1: Well, it, it they looked to, to find out what features work best. You know what what are what are actually serving the needs of the programmers, and we'll take those. And I just think that's you know the only way to do it. Well, and and Python did that like with the uh, pattern matching stuff. Basically, lifted it from Scala yeah. because Scala had pretested it. And so why wouldn't you, unless you felt like you had to invent everything yourself? Yeah, so originally, I was looking at Kotlin, and I've been reading books on Kotlin concurrency. And then I started realizing the same problem, probably worse, with these books in terms of, oh, um, well, this is a book for beginners. Now, when a thread is blocked, (laughs) and of course, you know what that is, that kind of thing, you know, and it's just like rampant. There's just no awareness about what people may or may not know. And as a result, people are embarrassed to say, oh, I don't really understand these basics of concurrency because, oh, you're supposed to know them. And, you know, that drives me nuts. Yeah. So the material out there for Kotlin is, it kind of made me turn to Python a bit. Well, first I realized, oh, I'm going to need to look at how does Go do it, how does java project loom how are they doing it all these different approaches to coroutines and one of the things that is kind of tenuous is like well you have to have a thread to run a coroutine what's the relationship and who where do you get the thread from you get it from the operating system and there are these different you know there's kernel threads and there's user threads and there's For me, because I come from a hardware background, I have to understand how those gears turn. Okay. And nobody really covers it from top to bottom.
0: Is it because of the complexity of having to explain it across different operating systems and hardware?
1: I think they don't understand it. Because there's a lot to learn. There is a bunch to learn. And I, oh gosh, I... uh, the the first time i encountered concurrency was in when i was in graduate school studying computer engineering and a bunch of other things but i remember there was like a an assembly language instruction i don't know what the processor was but the teacher said oh and this is for concurrency and i thought what doing more than one thing at a time that's a weird idea yeah but i ended up writing a Many years ago, for a language for a magazine called Computer Language, I wrote an article where now I look at it and I go, "Oh, I did kind of a basic invention of coroutines uh, using C and a little bit of assembly language and set jumps and long jumps and C and et cetera, et cetera." And um, but I didn't understand. You know, I mean, I understood what I had achieved in that small but the big picture of concurrency is very messy. I mean, part of it is because you're actually solving a bunch of different problems and it's all in this box called concurrency. But there's it's like you you have a problem that you're trying to solve and what concurrency is is a bunch of strategies. Okay, yeah. And so you know in some cases and in many cases the simplest strategy is to have a queue and somebody just puts jobs on the queue and somebody takes it off very straightforward prevents a lot of problems but that's just one strategy and it only solves one class of problems but you know if you're obviously if you're doing something where are actually trying to achieve parallelism, well, it's a different kind of a problem. And and then it goes on and on. You have actors that solve certain types of problems. You have um, c- communicating sequential processes, which is what Go is built on. And there's so bunches of different strategies. And just understanding that is very challenging when you're trying to look at concurrency material because... Uh, people don't often say that. And I think it's because it's really easy to get, to achieve a success in a part of concurrency and to think that, that you know, that you understand it all. So...
0: Yeah. I mean, there's so many different methodologies just within Python itself,
1: so... Oh, yeah, exactly. And, and for me to, you, you need to be able to reason about it And to reason about it, you need to understand. In fact, uh, it was the last time Luciano was up here in, in Crested Butte. We were having a little developer retreat, and I started asking him questions about how Python concurrency works. And one of the things was, it's like at some point when you're using coroutines, when you're using, you know, async and await, something has to flip a switch that says that, oh, this other process that you're waiting on is completed. And that happens in the operating system, and somehow your Python coroutine now becomes runnable. And it's like all of that stuff, to me, you need to be able to have it in, you know, a a model in your head in order for you to successfully reason about concurrency.
0: Yeah, it's intense. (laughs) It,
1: It is, and it's fascinating, too, you know.
0: Yeah yeah I mean I would love to you're right that a lot of this has been a, a complaint that I've had about a lot of teaching and a lot of tutorials and things like that generally it's
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know people don't have maybe they feel like the the space to be able to dive into what's happening in the background and very often the examples that they use for concurrency are super fictitious which is frustrating to me like they they just Put weight states in, and it's like, okay, well, and that's hard for me to understand.
1: Right. Why would you do that?
0: Yeah. It's like, why would I, why do I want to, why do I want to slow down my program? I thought the point was to make it go faster and, and more efficiently.
1: <laughs> and even then, you have to understand what's going on there, and and even then it's like, well, if you do that, there's got to be a clock somewhere ticking off those right. those times, and you have to, the operating system manages, and it's on the CPU. They have clocks, and it's like, I I need to know that even if you're doing the wait, yeah, and what's yeah, yeah and and you're right. A lot of the early examples, oh, we'll just throw in a wait state, and you're just I'm I why I, a why <laughs> yeah b what's happening yeah. yeah. And it's not helpful.
0: And one of my favorite ones was uh, that actually ex- explained it really well, again, as a musician, was Lucas Laga did a, a kind of a music sequencer uh, project for mm-hmm. for PyCon 2020. I just was really impressed with it, like, as far as like teaching the idea of like awaiting for things and, you know, having these notes have to play at a specific time and, and kind of having all these kind of things kind of work together in it. Again, I have that background, and so that stuff really tied it together really well for me. But he's done a few other kind of tutorials and stuff. He was um,
1: well, and I think most people would understand. You know, most people have seen an orchestra,
0: yeah, or music, yeah, musicians waiting to play together.
1: (laughs) Any kind of musicians, you know, a band, and it's like so that would make sense to them. That that is a nice analogy.
0: Yeah, it was cool. You're in the planning stages for the book.
1: Yeah, well. Well, and I remember it, oh, it was at the PyCon in Portland. And I think a group of us, including Guido, had gone to a donut shop. And when, you know, this donuts were the thing and we were outside talking and I, I brought this up and he was like, yeah, we need a, we need a good concurrency book. So that's probably uh, another stimulation for me is the fact that, that he was supportive of it. And again, I'll have to. Oh, cool. But, but I want to explain concurrent. I'm going to expect people to know how to program, but I really don't expect them to understand anything about concurrency. I want to explain that from first principles yeah. and step-by-step so that people have a very clear uh, model in their mind and, like I say, can reason about it. Uh, to me, that's the goal. Yeah.
0: yeah. Can we talk a little bit about the... The kinds of meetups and things that
1: that you've done? Oh, please. You've kind of mentioned it
0: several times. Those sound really cool.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, I've been doing... Oh, boy. I started experimenting with... When the internet was relatively new, I started thinking, boy, we could could create conferences that didn't require scads of people and big companies and things like that, which previously, like the conference I had been involved with, with, the Software Development Conference huge staff, you know, just, it was a, like they had to make lots of money or they couldn't do it. And it would really constrained. So I started talking to people about this and eventually I mentioned to Martin Fowler and he said, Oh, let's do an experiment, which is the thing that I always try and remember. Um, one, one of the biggest impacts Martin has made on my life is to say, let's do an experiment. Cause I tend to, you know, have the wheels in my head start spinning and yeah, and I get stuck there, and doing an experiment takes you it it grounds you. <laughs> so um, so we started doing these experiments with you know, call them self-organizing conferences, and went through a bunch of different things. And eventually he discovered open spaces. So we started doing those, did a number of experiments, and then the Java Posse, when they were interviewing me, I was raving about this. And they said, Hey, we want to do a conference. So we started the Java Posse Roundup. Oh, cool. We did that until um the Java posse got tired and didn't want to do that anymore and we changed it to the winter tech form because it happens in winter and it happens here in Crested Butte which is a ski resort so yeah there is time you know we it's it's <laughs> the intent was that it's a half day conference okay um, not not i mean it's 5 days but each day is a half a day of conference but then people spontaneously started filling up the rest of the uh, the rest of the days with with other well, I remember when somebody first came to me and they said, uh, "We wanted to do this workshop in the afternoon. Would that be okay?" And I said, "Sure." And they go, "Good," because we were going to do it anyway. <laughs> I thought this is this is what a self organizing conference means. Yeah. <laughs> and so anyway, it uh, became the Winter Tech Forum, and then there is which we haven't had for the last couple of years for obvious reasons, uh, COVID. Yeah. So we're having the Summer Tech Forum. And 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 it's possible Luciano will be there. So fans of Luciano may want to may want to try and come. But
0: you're going to do it up in Crested again?
1: Crested Butte, yes. You have okay. to. It's a test. You have to. You know, there are hurdles to getting here, but it it tends to yeah, yeah. to bring really. It's interesting a bit of a drive
0: people. from uh, the Denver airport. <laughs> it's
1: a, yeah, typically. I mean, you can fly into Gunnison, but um, yeah, typically it's easier. And actually, there's many benefits to just renting a car in denver but uh hooking up with other people who are coming to the conference and carpooling because then you start the conference early (laughs) (laughs) while you're driving up and oh yeah people have good times that they rent houses together they do little excursions together and
0: yeah it's beautiful up there during the summer too so
1: it is gorgeous. It is gorgeous up here. Well, pretty much year round. I mean, the winter one is great too. And one of the things we do with that is have a a little, you know, a meal at a yurt that we cross country ski or or snowshoe out I don't know what it is. Wow, cool. A mile or two. It's not that far. And that's, you know, a wonderful way to to end the week. We also have a a a um progressive dinner, which is another one of those things that I thought... No, this is a bad idea. There's there's many things that initially hit me as bad ideas, and fortunately, I didn't have control, because people would do them anyway, and now I realize, oh my gosh, the progressive dinner is one of the most awesome things we do. Good thing I wasn't able to stop it. <laughs>
0: because, <laughs> to stop it,
1: yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it's like, once you see that, you realize, oh yeah, you want everybody to be able to have the freedom to try things out, because if you rely on one person, yeah. then you have all the foibles of that one person.
0: Right. And a, a lot of programmers are cautious.
1: <laughs> individuals, <Sure>. Yeah. <laughs> so. Well, and, and hauling yourself all the way up to Crested Butte is, yeah, it's an adventure. Let's say you have to be in the mood for an adventure. So, so
0: you're having it this year?
1: Yes. Uh, August 15th, the week of August 15th. And it's, Summertechforum.com. Okay. And yeah, so that's just the URL. Yeah, it's a it's it's a really fun thing. And we may do something afterwards if if like Luciano usually likes to do some kind of um developer retreat or something if he's up here and and nothing else is going on. So if he's here and I think he talked about wanting to go to the Elixir Conf, which is in Aurora something like that. Anyway, it's that's also in Colorado. So, yeah. So he he might be here. Anyway, well, k- stay tuned for that. We'll we'll see and we'll if we do, um, you know, we'll tack it on to the um to the Summer Tech forum website. Yeah, and then yeah, the other thing that we do is these developer retreats which is generally much smaller, very informal Initially, we tried to like plan them and go, "Oh, we're going to talk about this and do that," but then we discovered, you know, it's like when you start exploring something and then you discover something else, and you go, "We want to do that instead." Yeah. And so we don't really have
0: keep it pretty freeform.
1: It's really free. I mean, the, the more freeform, the better. It seems that it works out. So yeah, we're we're definitely going in that direction so yeah those are the two live things that i do and then occasionally i well i haven't traveled to consult for since before covid but i do that sometimes yeah i speak at conferences all over the world
0: yeah well hopefully this stuff ramps up safely over the next you know a <laughs> few months here i'm excited to yeah uh, pycon was a lot of fun and you know Again, as long as everything kind of stays safe, I'm, I'm excited to, to get into all this stuff and, and start <laughs> doing, uh, like there's yes. uh, even meetups here in, in Colorado Springs.
1: We're right. And we do. I'm trying to
0: get back into doing that in person. Yeah,
1: We do need everybody to be fully vaccinated. To, to come to any of the events because we we had, mean the Winter Tech Forum we had right as COVID was starting to happen and we lost a person. Oh no! We lost lost one of the Java Posse uh, originals and that was tragic. And then a bunch of people, I mean, everybody got it. Boy, it was it was tough. Yeah, and I I got it, <laughs> and that was whoo, yeah. yeah.
0: yeah very early on that would have been super rough
1: yeah it was it was pretty rough i don't remember some of it so you know messes with your head yeah yeah so don't anyway so that's why yeah we're we're pretty well it's it's like um picon was very yeah you need to be vaccinated and you need to uh, ideally we won't have to wear masks but um that'll certainly be uh an available option if you want to
0: yeah so I have these uh, weekly questions mm-hmm. I like to ask everybody, and the first one is, what's something that you're excited about in the world of Python?
1: Uh, well, type annotations. I, well, yeah, type annotations and also pattern matching, but that's partly because I'm looking at just the more general idea of what is polymorphism, and Python's pattern matching is is almost identical to Scala's and so there's a bunch of stuff you can do with it it has um, the the idea of some types and then you use the some type with a uh, with a pattern match and it's i realized when i looked at it cuz oh that's a different form of polymorphism so that and then just all the things that type hints are making possible which i just yeah which are beyond what i imagined i used to argue for dynamic typing yeah because because oh it's just i, I realized now that it was kind of off the mark because i think what i was arguing about was bad static typing static typing that made you work a lot but didn't give you much yeah okay but when you look at better languages like scala and kotlin and and now um python's type hints you go oh if it's a good static typing system, then it actually pays for itself many times over it's It's not just a hassle, so anyway, apologies for the for the for misleading people.
0: No, no, um, that's good. We've been talking a lot about it. <laughs> that was why when I was mm-hmm. on the show. Ah um, uh, yeah, we talked about it quite a bit, and I agree that that there are lots of things and benefits you can reap and at the same time, you you can do with, you don't have to do them. Sure. Which is, I think, kind of nice. The idea of gradual typing, I think, has been pretty successful.
1: Yes, yes. It, it gives you, right, right. It's like when you're, uh, James Ward and I wrote a book together on this language that, never well it got killed um, uh, flex and it had optional static typing and when you were doing something really messy not having to cast everything everywhere Mm. really cleaned it up and so being able to turn off the static typing or or making it optional or gradual or whatever is actually really beneficial because you can get you know maybe great benefits and then add more stuff later But uh, yeah, anyway, I'm quite a fan now.
0: Yeah, cool. What's something that you want to learn next?
1: (sighs) Well, I think what I've got my focus on is how concurrency threads, parallelism, all that stuff, which I have struggled with for many years on and off. But now it feels like, okay, it's time to, to drill in. Yeah, and and really understand it, and be able to explain it so that other people can understand it.
0: Yeah, such a great way to learn something is by trying to teach it. <laughs> yeah, e- even as you're formulating your ideas about it. Yeah,
1: and finding out that they don't work when you're teaching it. Yeah, so I imagine I will I will have probably classes at some point.
0: Yeah, what's the best way that people can follow the stuff that you do on the internet?
1: Well, my blog is bruceechle.com just my name.com my kind of main website is uh, mindviewllc.com okay and and then every like atomic scala and atomic kotlin and th- they all have com websites for themselves and then the winter tech forum and the summer tech forum both have their own websites but most If I've done it right, all of those come off of uh, MindViewLLC.com. And if you go to BruceEckle.com, there's a link to MindViewLLC.com. So that's probably the easiest way to start.
0: Yeah. Okay. And I'll I'll keep links with all that stuff there. Sure. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, Bruce. It's been fantastic to talk to you.
1: Well, it's been highly entertaining. And thank you for letting me dominate the conversation.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) All right. Thanks.
1: Okay, thank you.
0: I want to thank Bruce Eckel for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to The Real Python Podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that The Real Python Podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about Inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.